Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome, everyone, to The Crux, and good morning, Gary. Hey there, Mike. Good to see you. Today, our guest is one of the most respected crisis communications consultants and author, Eric Desenhall, who is with us to discuss crisis and communications, but also maybe to talk a little bit about his new book, False Light, which is a fictional novel, a tale of revenge that highlights the fragility of reputation. But before we do that, the news. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the FDA issued a statement calling for a pause on the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine due to blood clotting in six women. Keep in mind, millions have been vaccinated, Mm -hmm. but also one of those six women also died. The hold is expected to last up to 10 days, according to the New York Times. J&J's initial response which they've since removed from their site, quoted its chief scientific officer, Dr. Paul Stoffel, saying, the safety and well-being of the people who use our products is our number one priority, and we strongly support awareness. And it went on. It says, we continue to believe in the positive benefit-risk profile of our vaccine, and then cites the various organizations that are working on it. Now, Gary, two things that have been brought up. One is that the message itself doesn't do a lot tonally in terms of providing any empathy to the patients, which seems to run counter you know, to their credo, which a lot of people have pointed to through the years. It says, we believe our first responsibility is to the patients, doctors and nurses, to mothers and fathers and all others who use our products and services. In addition, it was pointed out over the weekend that J&J in further statements had said that, you know, that clotting had actually been experienced through other vaccines as well, which isn't the case. Question here is, 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 do you have a sense that the credo is being put on the shelf? Should they have been more expressive, more empathetic? What are your thoughts? Well, look, you know, and a lot of respect for the people at J&J, but it It seems to be, Mike, a bit of a pattern. I do think they should have been more empathetic. I do think the lawyers were involved in crafting this, and I I certainly understand that. But if I look back over the past few years with J&J on things like the lawsuits involving baby powder and allegedly causing cancer for women who used it over a long period, I, I just feel like there's been a lot of legalism in their crisis management or, you know, addressing these issues. And I think that's a shame. You know, they are a a science company and science is never perfect, but boy, when you get into a tough spot and you're trying to solve a problem, that credo is just so good, right? And it should guide, it, it should guide you in everything that you say. Yeah. And I think there are times, you know, where it's smart for companies to push back. I'm sure our guest today will suggest that as well. 
But when you're in the in the midst of a major pandemic, it seems like you'd be a little bit more careful, a little bit more thoughtful. We all have bad days. And, you know, Jan Jay has been a great brand through the years. Yeah. But it's like, particularly when it matters most, you hope people give it their best. Anyway, so the second item that I have is an international group of 35 children's advocacy and consumer groups sent a letter. And in fact, that group is actually led by a Boston-based organization called Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. But they sent a letter to Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. And in the letter, the group was, was writing about concerns that Facebook, which owns Instagram, is toying around with creating a special Instagram for those that are 13 years of age and, and younger. But the letter cites a number of research studies that raise concerns about the impact of excessive screen time on children and adolescents. And some of those impacts were like obesity, decreased sleep, psychological well-being, body image issues, as well as cyberbullying. Bullying. The Facebook spokesperson, uh, Stephanie Otway, essentially said the company was only in the early stages of developing the product and that they were doing this because individuals right now are required to say what their age is. And apparently some kids 13 years of age and younger are lying to get through the verification screens. Did you ever know a 12 or 11 year old to lie? No, um, no. <laughs> but anyway, she's quoted in a New York Times story saying, the reality is that kids are online. They want to connect with their family and friends, have fun and learn. And we want to help them do that in a way that is safe and age appropriate. Mm -hmm. She pointed out that the company would not show ads in an Instagram product for children younger than 13, and that it planned to consult with experts on children's health and safety. Gary, does Facebook have a point? Should tech companies be permitted to create and develop safer lanes for children who are going to be online anyway? Or are the advocates right and the risks are just too high? And for that matter, what role do parents have in all this? Well, a lot of questions there, Mike. I, I would say, yes, tech companies do have a right and they should develop products for platforms for young people because they are online. Here's my thing though, Mike, mm -hmm. I don't trust Facebook <laughs> to do it, I, you know, and got, there's a lot of great people in Facebook and I, I know it's, it's in many ways impossible to prevent to police the entire internet, but I, I, let me ask I you: are, are you on Facebook? Are you on? Uh, uh, I am on Facebook, <laughs> but very, you know, just to are show. Are you on Instagram? No, no. Oh. So maybe, maybe Mike having a one for people under thirteen. Maybe then I would get it, you know, and I'd be online because I, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I just Facebook has been faced with so many choices, so many opportunities to do the right thing. And for some reason, things have gone the other way, not that they're purposefully doing the wrong thing. I think this is a good thing to try to do. To, and to answer your last question, of course, parents should be the ones actually doing all this policing. But if I'm a parent, I'm not sure I trust Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, my hat's off to the campaign for a commercial free childhood, because I think they're 
their letter, if, if for only anything, it will, it will prompt Facebook in creating a product to do what its spokeswoman said their intention is to do. I think it forces yeah. them into a corner. So, so hooray for them. And, and then in terms of Facebook, I only hope that they're sincere and aren't, you know, as a consequence, selling off the data about what these children are doing as a consequence of participating on that new exactly. platform. Next item, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission on Saturday warned consumers with small children that they should stop using Peloton's Tread Plus treadmills. The urgent warning comes after reports of 38 injuries and one death linked to the machine. And there's already a politician, Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, has weighed in saying it's clear that the Peloton Tread Plus must be recalled. The company's attempts to dismiss reports of injury as consumer misuse are irresponsible and inexcusable. Yet when you go to the Peloton investor site, there is a statement there from CEO John Foley, which is pretty empathetic. He says, I'm reaching out to you today because I recently learned about a tragic accident involving a child and the Tread Plus resulting in un unthinkably a death. While we are aware of only a small handful of incidents involving the Tread Plus where children have been hurt, each one is devastating to all of us at Peloton and our hearts go out to the families involved. He further underscores the company's commitment to safety and instructs parents to do exactly as the safety instructions that come with the treadmill state. Keep children and pets away from the Peloton exercise equipment at all times. When you finish a workout on your Tread Plus, remove the safety key and store it out of the reach of children and anyone else who should not be able to start the Tread Plus. He also provides a phone number in the event consumers have any questions or concerns and closes with, we care deeply about your health and wellness, starting with your safety and the safety of your family. Gary, what do you think of Peloton's response and what should a company do if after being responsive, they're being challenged by a politician like Senator Blumenthal who wants them to remove their product from the market? Well, I, I do think there is, and I've been impressed with Peloton on this and other issues. They had that crazy ad featuring the woman who got a Peloton yeah. for Christmas. And I think they've responded quickly and sort of nimbly. And there is a lot of empathy in this statement and a lot of sort of coping information, coping and scoping, right? How do you, how do you protect people in your home, young people, children from the, from the treadmill and then scoping that it's, it is a limited number of cases, although one is too many. By the way, I, I tried to, I looked up the CPSC statement on this is how is this different than other uh, treadmills? Right. Why is it, you know, I, I just couldn't find a reason why people are getting and pets apparently getting hurt on it. And, and so there you go. Look, they're, Politicians, when they, they, uh, I've been involved in a few yes. clients recalls <laughs> <both have>. through <laughs> this. And, and Elliot Spitzer, when he was the attorney general of New York, just, and Eric, Eric doesn't all our, our guests coming up familiar with this case, just tortured us about some of our appliance products until he got what he want, which was a settlement. And, and perhaps this is something where you want to solve the problem rather than fight it. And if there is something specific about these treadmills, which I cannot discern, 
right? Uh, you certainly want to want to address it. Yep, yep. Well, you know what they say about blood in the water, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So now I've got a meaty one for you. Uh, last <laughs> last week, astrophysicist, one of my favorites, Neil deGrasse Tyson, totally. posted a tweet. What for him seemed like a statement of fact. He, his tweet read, "The good thing about science is that it's true, whether or not you believe in it." Last I saw, it had over 130,000 likes. But Steakum Brands, which packages and markets sliced steak, which is sold in grocery stores, this is the thinly sliced steak that you use, you know, like in a Philly cheesesteak. Yeah. They took the opportunity to pick a fight with Neil deGrasse Tyson, first commenting on his statement of science being true with just three words, which I found a little off-putting and maybe a little race-baiting, said, log off, bro. And then it... <laughs> Followed that up later with another tweet that said, nope, science itself isn't true. It's a constantly refining process used to uncover truths based in material reality. And that process is still full of mistakes. And they almost purposely misspelled mistakes. So it's M-I-S-T-E-A-K-S of mm. stakes. Neil just point, posts ridiculous sound bites like this for clout, and he has no respect for epistemology. More than an hour later, Dacombs followed that with yet another tweet that said, the irony of Neil's tweet is that by framing science itself as true, he's influencing people to be more skeptical of it in a time of unprecedented misinformation. Now, all of this lit up Twitter with Trump mm. proponents and client deniers weighing in, but also some people just having fun with puns and all the commotion. So, you know, even people asking, what's the beef all about? Gary, is this smart marketing or is it risky business and why? Well, you, Mike, in a time when most companies are trying to avoid conflict, Stakeums is out there <laughs> looking for conflict. <laughs> throwing some roundhouse punches. I, 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 look, I guess we're talking or about- at least steak a round and, steak. Yeah, at least a round steak. And there was nothing wrong with what Tyson said. And, and by the way, you know, he said, the good thing about science is that it's true. Well, of course, right. science is true when it's well done. So another right. meat thing from me. But there's nothing wrong with what he said. So I can't understand the motivation for doing this Yeah. other yeah. than- just pure, total sensationalism to get people tweeting about Stakeums. Yeah, I mean, some of their tweets, though, I mean, get to the heart. I mean, obviously, science is about the continual quest, right? Discovery, to get, yeah. To, to yeah. get things right. And we all learned the scientific method, like, back in fifth grade. And, and, and you know, when they talk about epistemology, that, that's, in fact, what they're trying to get at. But I think that they were taking in consideration who their audience was and that they might feed off of this. Mm -hmm. No pun intended there. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that, I don't know, it, to, to, to me, it's, it's, it's a strange one it, and, and, and it's fraught with challenges. And I think they took some risks that might actually be risky for them in the long run. It certainly seems, Mike, like there is a political tone to this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So my last item here is, is, is really a conflation of two stories or a series of stories. You know, we've discussed more than a few times on this podcast, the need for healing the polarization 
that seemingly has riddled US politics and the need for better responses to institutional racism. And yet in recent weeks, uh, there clearly are signs that we've got much more to do. I mean, we've seen hate crimes against Asians on the rise. This past week in a Minneapolis suburb, Brooklyn Center, a young black man, Dante Wright, was shot when pulled over for driving an SUV with expired license plates. In the city of Chicago, there was released body cam footage over the weekend showing a 13-year-old Mexican-American boy, Adam Toledo, being shot by police. This actually occurred like three weeks ago. Both of those shootings uh, led to protests and have both communities on edge, especially as the Derek Chauvin trial comes to a close. And then also in the last week, we had some members of Congress, pro-Trump lawmakers led by Marjorie Taylor Greene, say that they're forming a caucus that they want to call the America First Caucus. Some of the organizational documents were released to the media and have very explicit nativist language and give kind of primacy to Anglo-Saxon traditions. And in fact, states that societal trust and political unity are threatened when foreign citizens are imported en masse. So Gary, two things strike me about all of this that I'd love to get your thoughts on. One, I get that the Biden administration right now is seized by COVID-19 and the pandemic and getting the economy up and running post-pandemic and climate change. But shouldn't the U.S. government be doing more to heal racial and ethnic wounds? And, and then thinking about, you know, uh, they still have much more to do to address policing reform. And then secondly, as someone who served as the CE CCO for one of America's great companies, what role should business be playing here? What, if anything, should companies be doing to brace for whatever the decision is coming out of the Chauvin trial? I know that's a lot, but it's like, to me, well, all of these things kind of conflated. It, it had me both filled with angst as well as concern as America proceeds to this week with the closing yeah. statements, arguments on the Chauvin, on the Chauvin yeah. trial. I, you know, Mike, it's, it's on the Bidens. I, I have been from the start, and, and, you know, of the opinion that Biden and his team should focus on COVID and nothing else and get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, and, and mm -hmm. but I, I, I see all of this happening and I would add to this, Mike, by the way, the incredibly sad, repeated attacks by people with guns, mm. you know, in Indianapolis and, and mm -hmm. you know, more over the weekend. It's like you know, we're sitting on a tinderbox. Correct. You know, and I would add that to this mix. And, and so I think he does have to pivot, meaning Biden, to addressing these things more forcefully. He's a guy who can do it. He, he's a blue collar guy who likes people. And I, I think they have to do two things at once. Now, what? I, I, I don't know. I will say on the second question about what companies should be doing and is about the trial in Minneapolis is talking to their people this week, mm -hmm. talking and listening to their teams this week, and particularly taking a look at their their forums that they have, their employee forums, 
and setting up listening sessions ahead of any kind of verdict. That's what I would be doing. I think the most important thing this week is for these companies to listen and to really think about their values and whether they are making progress on diversity. They're measuring it. They have programs that are both short and long-term to improve and, and just listening to the people inside their organization on how important this verdict will be. We don't know what's going to happen, but if, if there's an innocent verdict, uh, I think most companies are going to have to say something. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 like I said, I, I, I spent a lot of the weekend watching the news over the past week, and it just filled me with angst and anger. And I just am, am very much concerned for the U.S. coming out of all of this. I, I, I think people need to be careful, but I think the U.S. government is going to have to take more sincere action when it comes mm-hmm. to race and policing. I mean, we also, one of the things I didn't mention was the the soldier in Virginia that got pulled over and harassed. Yeah, pepper spray. You know, and it's like, if you're black and you're driving a car, you're, you're presumed to be guilty of something. And that's just unfortunate. That's not the America that I, I, I would have us aspire to or believe in or embrace. So hopefully cooler minds will prevail. And uh, I know that companies, smart companies are thinking about how do they talk to their employees Mm -hmm. after the decision is handed down. And then how do they create environments, right? Where everyone is truly respected and, and truly understood. We've got a long way to go. We're not gonna solve it here. And we've got a great guest ahead of us. Let's go talk to Eric. We're fortunate today to have with us on The Crux, one of the most respected consultants in crisis communications and management, Eric Desenhall. Eric's the co-founder and CEO of Desenhall Resources and author of an engrossing new novel, False Light. Many of you who are listening know Eric. He's got more than 30 years of senior experience as a crisis communication and management counselor for companies individuals, celebrities, sports organizations, nonprofits, educational institutions, and his firm is highly sought after for crisis and damage control. The amazing thing about Eric, and and I've known Eric a long time, and and I consider him a friend, is he also finds time to write books. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing. He's the author of 11 books, including three on crisis management, and what he calls quote-unquote, corporate witch hunts. And I think everybody I know has read these books, Eric. Damage Control, How to Get the Upper Hand When Your Business is Under Attack, Nail Them, Confronting High-Profile Attacks on Celebrities and Businesses, and Glass Jaw, A Manifesto for Defending Fragile Reputations in an Age of Instant Scandal. And those titles should give you a pretty good idea of the approach that Eric takes 
to crisis management and damage control. He also finds the time, Eric, to write well-reviewed novels. False Light, which is his latest, is described as a tale of retribution set against the backdrop of sensationalist modern media and cancel culture, which we're going to talk about. One reviewer called it a rollicking read, and I agree. I'm about halfway through it, and before we came on, on the air, I was talking to Eric about how much I enjoy particularly the dialogue in the book, which is sporty. I would describe it as sporty, Eric, and quite realistic. And great read for people, by the way, involved in journalism and PR. So I'm, I'm tired, Eric, just talking about you. So let's get to the questions. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm, Welcome I'm, I'm to tired. the- <laughs> I'm tired of hearing it, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the crux. Thanks for having me. It's terrific. So Glassjaw, your description of that book, again, which widely read in the communications community, says the book explores how once powerful people, organizations, and brands are easily brought down by the seemingly powerless through the media and internet that feed almost exclusively on destructive information. Most crisis managers won't say that, at least they won't say it in public. Why are you so upfront about your perspective on what we all do when managing crises? Well, I, I think that I have kind of what I call a 5% rule. If I speak to an audience or on a podcast like this to corporate audiences, I know that 95% of them will never hire me, I, but it's not the, it's the 5% that I want. It's the 5% who feel that they are under siege and in a high risk position. And so I, I think that a lot of what I, I've been asked the question, why are you debunking the effectiveness of your own industry? Is that a very smart strategy? Mm -hmm. And my view is if you want a certain type of client, you want a client that doesn't want to be lied to. And what I find is the corporate client base is desperately looking to be lied to. And I think that that's awful. I mean, now what I see is a company under siege will go into a large Madison Avenue firm. They will be greeted by a, a Pierce Brosnan and Margot Robbie lookalike in the lobby. The <laughs> lobby will have scrolling Twitter feeds and TVs all over the place. Wow, these people control all this. They'll be taken into a conference room. The first slide will say a crisis is an opportunity, which by the way, it's not. A crisis is a crisis. Somebody will use the, the phrase, get ahead of the story, and people will go, yes, wonderful. And then the conversation will default to how much we all love transparency and diversity and corporate social responsibility, and the hairs on everybody's neck will stand up and everyone will feel wonderful. The problem is none of this has anything to do with why we are there. And I'm not, I'm not there because these are not the type of cases I take because I'm not a, I am not a full-time salesperson. Right. And so what, what's happened is our industry, the crisis industry, has become commoditized, as all industries do, and taken over by people who are really good at selling. I don't know that I'm bad at it. I mean, I've had my own business for 34 years, but I am not a full-time salesman. I don't go around the world making promises because I know it's going to end up with disappointed clients and unpaid bills. So I take a very assertive position going forward in order to qualify who I want and who wants me. 
And, and Eric, so why is that? In other words, if 95% of companies or potential clients are sort of getting it wrong, are they reading the environment wrong or they have unrealistic expectations of the outcome of, of the crisis or what can be done? Yeah, I, th I think it's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, these are not stupid people. These are mm -hmm. actually very smart people. But like all of us, everyone is looking out for their own self-preservation. And the and in, in one of the reasons I called my last crisis book Glassjaw is Glassjaw is a term from boxing, meaning the inability to, to, to take a shot. And most companies, anybody that's being honest knows that they're very vulnerable. And so when you feel very vulnerable, what you want is to not feel vulnerable. And so what you do is you call the problem something other than what it is. You call it a communications challenge. I had one client say to me, they, they stopped me. They said, I don't want you going into our CEO and using the term motivated adversaries. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, we hear it you know, so-and-so company, we don't have adversaries. I said, what do you have? And they said, we have stakeholders. And I said, well, when the Manson family showed up in Sharon Tate's kitchen, were they stakeholders? And, you know, the reaction was, <laughs> and the fact is it was a very, it was very difficult yeah. for these people to acknowledge that there were adversaries. And so, you know, a lot of times what people want is to be comforted rather than challenged. Yeah, they want to take a settle rather than fight point of view, right? Which sometimes is the right thing to do. I mean, I think mm -hmm. one of the times, one of the misconceptions about the way I advise is it's not, I'm not hired to be a tough guy. I'm yeah. hired to solve a problem. And yeah. I've had cases where, although I can never talk about them and no one will ever acknowledge that they exist, where a company has come to me and said, well, this activist group is accusing of, us of engaging in this bad environmental practice. And I'll say, is there any way you can stop it? And I had one client say, well, in five years, and I said, make a deal. And they said, <laughs> yeah. well, make a deal. Then they're gonna take credit. I said, so what? Right, exactly. Yeah. The objective, yeah. Let them, the objective is to make the problem go away. So even though I know my reputation is as somebody yeah. who fights, that is not always my job. My job is to make it go away. Well, to your point, it's to solve problems, right? And and I, I too liked Glassjaw, and I loved Nalem. Nalem is about confronting attacks on celebrities and companies. That book's now, I think, eight years old. More Tell than us, 20. 20. <laughs> 20, 20, wow. Tell us the big takeaway from that book and whether it's changed since you wrote it. Well, the title Nalem, which was, it, it got a lot of, it got some controversy. It makes it sound like my advice is, well, if you're at a problem, go out and nail them. But as I say on the first or second page, where that comes from is I went for a run with an investigative reporter friend of mine in the late 90s. And we, I live in the Washington area and I, we passed the home of a of a figure that was in scandal. And I pointed it out and my friend said, well, we're going to nail them. And I said, that's what it's about with you, isn't it? And he didn't like that. He, you know, he, he thought that that was, he didn't see himself as somebody who wants to nail. And a lot of what I was playing at there is the difference between conflicts and communications problems. A lot of times what the communications industry sells is the idea that you are facing some sort of misunderstanding as if if you get the, the Arabs and the Palestinians and the Israelis together they're, and explain to them 
things, there someone's going to go, oh, you mean that West Bank? Oh, <laughs> now that I know you meant that one, we're at peace. And it has nothing to do with communication. It has to do with a conflict. And my firm was founded on the idea that you had have conflicts. Uh, because my background before that was politics, where you, know, you have people who don't like your person, who don't like their platform. Right. And so the takeaway from Nalem is conflicts versus communications problems. It, that's what we're confronting. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting in, in terms of thinking about politics, because both Gary and I spent some time in politics before no. we went into the world of, of business. But what's interesting is, you know, it seems as though what does happen is that people want to focus in on the middle, which seemingly is getting smaller and smaller. And what they fail to realize is that much of the battleground is fought amongst advocates that are poles apart. Well, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, the, the, the phrase preach to the choir has always had a negative connotation, but actually sometimes the choir is all you have. Right. And I mean, Donald Trump won because he had a big choir. And so sometimes what you do have to do is mobilize the choir. And because there's certain people you're never going to get. I mean, it's been very interesting to me to watch how a lot of companies are pandering now on the whole cancel culture, environment. I mean, sometimes environmental issues, but diversity issues, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. There is this tendency to go to people to try to get people who hate you to love you, as yeah. opposed to trying to get people who like you to support you and trying to get people who can may listen to listen, as opposed to trying to get people who hate you to, to like you, which I think is pretty futile. But I think you have to ask yourself what it is you're trying to do. I mean, one of the things that I think companies are doing now that I understand is they're trying to buy off the revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, I, and I get that. They're trying not to inflame people who are coming at them, which is, is not a bad strategy, but let's call it what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in, particularly with the reference on, on Nalem and confronting attacks, give us some examples of how someone or a company, prominent individual, how they've confronted an attack on their reputation and been successful at that. Well, I think that one of the examples that I think is a gold standard, and I think it was when the whole crisis management industry changed, was around 1993 when Dateline NBC blew up a pickup truck in order to, a GM pickup truck, in order to demonstrate that it was flammable. And, great you know, G, a great GE moment, by the way, Eric. General How was that? We owned oh, NBC Well, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, because I, I, I was confusing it for a second with, with GM. But I, I think that, uh, look, well, we all have bad moments. I mean, and, and that's, that's the key to really being in the crisis yeah. industry. But I, I think that that was the bellwether for companies going, oh, my God, they really are trying to get us. Because before that time, the traditional PR route was, let's schmooze our way out of this. And I think what General Motors decided was, this is, this is a war. And yeah. I think that that was when the crisis management industry really changed. But I think that in recent years, 
I, I look at different cases. I look at what Chevron did in Ecuador to fight back against plaintiff right. lawyers. I mean, there's a great book about that, Law of the Jungle. And they basically said, we are not going to be defamed by plaintiff's lawyers because everybody else surrenders to plaintiff's lawyers. So I think that that, that was very interesting. I think it, it's been very interesting as much as I personally dislike intensely Donald Trump. He threw a lot of the laws of crisis management out the window. He showed that you can smash back and succeed including using some outrageous tactics that the people on this Zoom call would never do. I mean, I would never, if somebody said, Eric, were you talking to Gary and, and, and Mike? Nope, not me. Well, we have you recorded. No, you don't. Um, <laughs> no, you don't. Well, you know, there are hundreds of people who've seen you. No, they haven't. I don't think that that is a good development, but it is not my job. It is my job to look at what works and what doesn't. I think it's been, it was very interesting to watch how Bill Clinton survived. I mean, the, the cliche about Clinton, and I've written about this, is that he apologized and the country forgave him. That's not what happened at all. Number one, he lied. Number two, he stonewalled. Number three, he said we must stop the politics of personal destruction. Number four, he called in some of his top people in, and, and supporters, including those that did not work for him, went after the Republicans in Congress whose sexual histories were worse than his. Mm -hmm. And number five, once his enemies were eliminated, then he apologized. But it was, it's was it been very interesting. And then you have things where companies have surrendered. I mean, McKinsey just got hit over its work in the opioid issue. Right. And I, you know, I, I didn't advise them on this, but Frankly, they knew it was a no-win situation and they had to settle quickly and they knocked it out of the news relatively quickly. So that's stuff you have to look at too. Interesting, yeah. interesting. I want to get into the issue of character assassination, which is a theme, by the way, of your novel, False Light, and something you've recently written about. It's also something you've been subject to. <laughs> For example, you know, I doing a little research, Eric, on you, you when you pull things up, it's always amazing what you find out about people you know, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's a mention, I think, on Wikipedia on you working for ExxonMobil to seek to revoke the tax-exempt status of Greenpeace. And for that, you've been called an attack dog. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, it's, it's very telling. I mean, it's limiting what I can say about litigation, but you know, I never, never met the client, never worked on it. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a client of my, of a man who has not been my partner for 20 years. That is not to suggest that he did anything wrong. I, I yeah. don't believe he did, but I never worked on it. And the legal case was dismissed twice with prejudice by a very mm -hmm. angry judge who recognized that it was a non-issue. But as people later told me, the objective was bad publicity because right. when the lawsuit was filed, it was covered extensively. When it was dismissed, it received no coverage at all. And you have to go into the basement of the bowels of legal texts yeah. to find out that it was dismissed. But what it goes to show you is here I am in the business and I can't get it off my Wikipedia page. <laughs> That's amazing, Eric. Yeah, never worked on it. But, you know, it's, it has stuck with me. You know, the attack dog business, that is, that is something that I can't disown completely because even though it's a small measure of what I do, the fact is 
I have been very clear in multiple books and articles that I do sometimes take an assertive approach. That is not wrong. The only thing that is wrong is the implication that that is all that I do, because it's not really my job to be an attack dog. It is my job to make a bad problem go away. But, you know, there's also been stuff out there about me, you know, working for Enron, working on the Enron case. The truth is I went to one meeting, I listened to the presentation, and I said, I don't know what I could possibly do for you. This is way too complicated. Right. But it, the better story is he was involved with Enron. Exactly. And so, but it shows you where we are. So what I've had to choose, do I go to war and speak publicly about something that has, was in litigation, that it does me no favors to talk about? Right. Exactly. Well, you, you know, you recently, it's an amazing story. You wrote about character assassination and, and cancel culture. I think there was a column, an op-ed in the Daily News that you did recently that I read. And you assert, of course, that it's happening more broadly than we might imagine, which I think is absolutely right. Even young people being smeared by their competitors for precious spots in top-level schools. That, that part of that, when you have personal knowledge about, is just extraordinary to me. And then in that piece, you also wrote about the case of highly respected New York Times reporter Donald McNeil, who was forced out of the Times, quote unquote, for independent of the referential context in which he, he used a racial epithet. The result you write is, we know that our monsters are getting their long overdue just desserts because it's everywhere, but we haven't the slightest idea what is happening to the innocent or merely foolish because there is neither the stomach for finding out, nor any profit to sharing their stories, names and all. So that perfectly sums up the story you just told us. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that that is, that is what is getting scary because, you know, toward the beginning of, we're, we're all roughly the same age, <laughs> toward the beginning of our careers, there were referees. If I mm. called up, and I'm being cute here, Dan Rather, and I said, you know, Gary, Gary Sheffer is a, is a Colombian drug lord, he would go, how do you know that? And the chances are it would never see the light of day. But there wasn't Wikipedia. With Wikipedia or Twitter, what's to stop me from tweeting, you know, Gary Sheffer is, is, a, is a drug lord? Fine. Find me. Stop me. And then when you try to stop me, it will be responded with by 7,200 more tweets and bots saying, saying people say, critics say, yeah. Gary Sheffer is is it is a drug lord so so what do you do and i think one of the problems with the conversation about cancel culture is the assumption is that look in the end they're taking down people like weinstein so so what yeah and you know if that were the case there could be an argument that could be made that well you know bad people are being taken down which they are the problem is, is the kind of calls I'm getting, which I can't take is, I mean, I did get a call from a parent of a kid who applied to a competitive school. One of the other kids who was in line, apparently for the position at, at this school, sent a photo or a video of the kid singing a rap song. And as you know, rap songs have certain lyrics using words that 
that very few of us approve of. But nevertheless, when you sing those lyrics and you say those lyrics, it is not defamation to, to say you use the phrase. And what happened was the university reversed its decision. And this is not harmless. And one of the things that I'm finding, and, and false light deals with this extensively, mm. is what, you know, if you want to ruin someone, you have a 100% chance of achieving something with a sexual or racial allegation. And was this what the Me Too movement and Martin Luther King really had in mind? I don't think so. I think the objective was to bring, hold bad people accountable. And there's a difference between holding bad people accountable and cancel culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? If you're the target of one of these things, Eric, is it, is it impossible to win? Well, it's harder to win. I think you have to ask yourself a few, a few questions. I mean, what do I look at when someone comes to me? Number one, do they have resources? And that mm -hmm. is not just to be mercenary. But you know, one of the reasons why the Duke lacrosse kids were able to triumph is they had money. Yeah. And that's, that's a sad reality, but you don't get good attorneys or people like me for nothing. I mean, every now and then pro bono you do. Number two, what is the downside of fighting? If it were your kid, do you go to war against the university that, that retroactively rejected you knowing that there is a 100% chance we could succeed in getting this very public and maybe even getting the university to yeah. reverse their decision? But your child for the rest of his or her life will be the one accused of racism and sued. So you have to ask yourself that. Now, if you're Chevron and you a rumor is being spread that you have polluted beyond all, all belief and you have the resources to fight plaintiff's lawyers, maybe you do it. Yeah. And so those are the variables that you look at. If you're Brett Kavanaugh and, and the prize is the Supreme Court, you gut it out, you fight it. Yeah. And, and often what happens is you know, what I find is with every credible allegation, ones ultimately enter the fray that are less credible. This is why Governor Cuomo is fighting. He's hoping that by gutting it out, some of, that he will be able to survive politically, that he will be able to discredit some people, that he may be acquitted in that, in that process. And I, I think that these are all viable strategies and considerations. So Gary's former boss, Jeff Immelt, we talked to him a few weeks ago, and said that uh, all management today is crisis management. Do you agree? Oh, I think to a large extent. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I remember when Boeing you know, had their situation blow up about a year ago, I, I was doing an interview on CNBC and somebody said, well, don't you think that the CEO needs to be more compassionate? And I said, look, he's an engineer. Mm -hmm. he, he got to be the head of the company because he had skills to be the head of the company. Mr. Rogers would probably have been more compassionate, but do you want the CEO of the company to be skilled in babysitting children or running a multinational <laughs> corporation? Which is it? And so, and furthermore, in every crisis situation, there is a 100% chance, not 90, not 99, 100, that the crisis will be deemed to have been botched. And so what happens is, 
the CEO's job is to essentially be fired in this climate because when you know that CNBC and the Wall Street Journal are going to ask, when is the CEO going to resign? The board of directors doesn't have the gut to be able to say, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna hold on because you know, she's a good CEO, we're gonna slug this out. The easiest move is to bounce the CEO because it becomes- Just like in sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, beca it becomes performative. And so, you know, I think that uh, as a university president said to me, I'm only as good as the worst possible person on my campus. Because if the worst possible camp person on the campus does something idiotic, it's going to be, what did he know? When did he know it? Yeah. Why didn't he handle it better? So I think Jeff is, is right in that regard. Isn't that crazy though? It, it's very crazy, but this is one of the reasons I am looking existentially. I mean, I'm 58 years old. My business has changed radically. The future of it, I think, will not be what the past was. And I have to be, we all have to be realistic in that. I mean, I think where the industry is going, I mean, someday when we're retired, I think it's going to be, well, there's a crisis, bomb the internet with an algorithm. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and, and I, I, I don't know what that algorithm is, and I don't think anybody does yet, but that's going to be the other, th the other thing. And I alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation is, well, you know, at the beginning of, of our careers, crises were command and control, okay? The bad guys did this to us. So here's what we're going to do. We're gonna recall the product. We're gonna, we're gonna clean the environment. We're gonna prepare you for congressional testimony. We're gonna fight litigation. We're gonna mobilize your employees. We're gonna do some advertising. Now what happens is anybody who goes into a company under siege with an ad campaign involving a little girl, daisies and puppy dogs running through a field, they will get the business because no one has ever been fired for okaying that. And does it do anything? No, but the objective of the ad campaign is not to solve the problem, it is to make the executives who choose to do the ad campaign keep their jobs. And this is, this is where we are. And yeah. I, you know, I, that's something that I that I can't ignore, and I have to think about as I look at the future of my industry. Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 do you think that's what is at play, as many companies seemingly are having to walk the plank on social issues? They've got Gen Z employees, maybe Gen Z and millennial customers, on issues like more recently voting rights, racial injustice. You wrote recently that many companies believe everything needs a response, but it's not always the best strategy. Instead, you advise companies to be vocal in times of fidelity and subtlety. Could you explain this to the to our audience? Yeah, I mean, I th I don't think that there is one umbrella strategy for handling social issues. It depends. I think a lot of times, you know, on a lot of these racial issues, my view, the Black Lives Matter movement, you can't ignore it. But I also think some of the things that I have seen companies do has been almost insulting because the belief that if you throw a lot of rhetoric at something, it will make people happy. I think that you, you can't ignore it and you do have to acknowledge the existence of an issue. But I have seen time and again, especially recently, companies 
tying themselves into pretzels to show how unracist they are. Mm -hmm. And it has insulted effectively some of the people who they think they're going to win over who were saying, gee, thanks a lot for your charming box of candies, but what are you doing <laughs> about hiring practices? Yeah. And, yeah. I think, and I think it's a legitimate issue. I have also seen companies and institutions that have basically held their breath and ducked and done just fine. And, you know, how the problem with my industry, and I'm very critical in my books of my industry, is that nobody ever made money for telling a client to hold their breath and duck. Right. You make money by saying, well, let's do a bus tour, let's do a media tour, let's do an ad campaign. And I think that you have to think subversively about what is in your best interest. And I think that some of this voting rights business in Georgia is more trying to manage internal politics than it is external. And I won't pass judgment on it by saying it's all bad or it's all good. Yeah. But <clears throat> I, I do believe that there is a tendency to believe that the entire world is as woke as people who turn up in boardrooms, and they are not. You have a huge percentage of this country that is unhappy with a lot of the cultural things that are going on. And you have to be mindful of that. You have to be mindful, not just who is going to cheer you, but who is going to privately hate you. Mm -hmm. Let me take a live example. The Derek Chauvin trial is coming to a close. And if you had a corporate client in Minneapolis, or for that matter, any major city in America. And um, I do. <laughs> and what might you be helping them brace for or say in the aftermath of that trial, particularly if they've got a sizable, diverse population amongst their employees or their customer base? A lot of what I have been saying, and this is a gross oversimplification, is two things. Number one, hold your breath and see what happens because we don't know. I mean, there could be a guilty verdict and people will be satisfied with it. And, and, you know, and so that is one variable. The other variable is a bad verdict that people are unhappy with that causes riots. But I don't see a correlation between how much you say and do and being relieved of attack. And so, you know, it, it's not like if the CEO or, or someone in the company expresses concern in a private setting that that is worse than doing an ad campaign. I'm very, very skeptical of high volume tying yourself up into pretzels to show how much you care. I don't see the dividend, nor do I see a dividend in doing absolutely nothing and fold your arms and say, that's none of our business. Somewhere in between, I think, is the answer. The problem is I think a lot of companies are so desperate to feel good about themselves, mm -hmm. they're taking it to a ridiculous high profile extreme on the expectation they're going to be rewarded for it. And I don't think that that's the case. Yeah, Ezra Klein along those lines had a very long but very interesting column in the New York Times today about cancel culture. And the point being, I think at the end of it being that companies are doing it to make themselves feel better yep. than they are to address any, any broader 
sort of societal issue. Yeah, I mean, Gary, to that end, probably one of the biggest, you know, one of my favorite conversations is we don't do much petrochemical work anymore, but I had the CEO come to me, uh, say to me, my kids are just driving me crazy about climate change. And I think that you cannot imagine how much of the motivation of some of these companies are high level executives being chastised by their teenage children. Their family. And, 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 and decisions are being made based on it. I mean, I think that the question is, and this is a question for a company like BP is, do, what do you get by spending a half a billion dollars saying you're a solar powered company when you're not? You know, now spending five million, fifty million to say we're exploring solar power—that might be different. But but a half a billion? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think those are the questions that you have to ask. So Eric, this has been fantastic. I always I feel refreshed, really, every <laughs> time I talk to you. Seriously about approach, and I teach crisis, which you've at Boston University, and you've been nice enough come and talk to our students about what you do. So this is terrific. So one last question: What's on your next on your writing agenda? You're going to do a sequel to False Light, or you're going to you go know, back? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, the writing. I mean, False Light has gotten a lot of good reviews. I yes. mean, the, the people who are interested in it are. I mean, I, I I like like to joke. I have a very loyal reader, and <laughs> the, the people who are interested in my books are people who are interested in, in, in media, interested in journalism, yeah. interested in the popular culture, but that's not necessarily the same thing as somebody who reads a John Patterson book. So I do enjoy talking about and dealing with the subject matter, but every time I sit down to write, I ask myself, why are you doing this again? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I've had some film options and things like that, but you know, I don't really, I'm not a big money writer. I yeah. just I just like doing it. And I have people who like what I do. So I, I don't know what I'm going to write next. I'm sure I'm going to come up with something. There's probably more in the nonfiction. There's more promise uh, in nonfiction than fiction. Yeah. So I might go back to that. But we'll see. I don't know what opportunities will come up. Excellent. We really haven't given you much of a chance to, to tease the false light story. You want to do that just a second here? Oh, sure. I mean, false light is basically a revenge story. I mean, it began as it basically asked the story, the question of what happens when a guy who's gotten away with everything his whole life finds himself on the receiving end of somebody just like him. And it, it deals with the aftermath of a sexual assault that goes unpunished when the young woman it realizes, is told that the opportunities for justice as she would like to see it are really not options that are healthy for her because she will be on trial and it is ultimately decided to pursue justice by creative means. And those means involve a very angry, clever investigative reporter who is not particularly woke, who knows, down, who knows how to take down a bad guy. There you yeah. go. Yeah, Mike, uh, see, I, I'm not talking to my wife at night now because I'm in the <laughs> middle of all this, right? I'm just well, nor, nor should you, Gary. What good could come of it? <laughs> good counsel. Good counsel. <laughs> Spoken like a good crisis manager. Thank uh, you. Eric's new novel is False Light. Thanks, Eric, for being on Th the podcast. Thanks, all of you. I look forward to watching and sharing the podcast. Terrific. Take Thanks. care.
thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.